Hello and welcome to our Christmas edition of Agronu Matters. I am Jake Prince, Business Development Elf at Basis, and today we have two fantastic guests joining us to get us into the festive spirit. So we're starting today's podcast with something that is vital for our Christmas dinners, something that many of us will force into our mouths on Christmas Day, and in fact something that Brits eat more of than any other nation in Europe. Yes, you guessed it, it's sprouts. We'll then be discussing a very current topic and raising awareness of the grapes behind our Christmas wine. So without further ado, let's go and meet our first guest. So our first guest today is Andy Richardson. Hi, Andy. Hi. Could you start by giving us uh, an introduction to yourself, please? Uh, sure. So uh, I'm a, an agronomist, uh, being uh, out in the fields for uh, just about 30, uh, 30 years or so. And I'm also a technical director for the Brasco Growers Association. Perfect. Thank you. So could you start by telling us a little bit about the sprout season? Yeah, so um, I suppose a bit, back, a bit of background to the crop. So we grow about three and a half thousand hectares of sprouts in the UK. So around about 50,000 tonnes. And we're growing them all the way from July, uh, all the way through the autumn and winter into the spring. And hopefully we're just about creeping into May with the last of the UK crop. Brilliant. And are they drilled directly into fields? I think I read somewhere that they're grown partly before they're then planted out. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so we sow them in the in the greenhouse. So most sprouts are, are planted out in April and, and May. Uh, so we sow them in the greenhouse in, in, in March, uh, most of the way through March. Um, plant, the little plants take then about sort of somewhere around about eight weeks, seven, eight weeks to, to grow before planting out in the field. So we're planting out tiny little, tiny little plants in the fields. And that okay. gives us much better establishment than, than drilling seeds. OK. And um, where are they grown in the UK? Are they grown in particular areas? And is there a reason for that? So mostly grown on the eastern side of the uh, of the UK, where it's uh, sort of colder and hopefully a little bit drier through the uh, through the winter. Uh, so Lincolnshire, Yorkshire, Scottish borders are really the main production areas. We don't grow too many sprouts on the western side of the UK. It's just a, too, it's milder, uh, it's wetter. And when we grow them in those sorts of conditions, the uh, the, the buttons tend to be uh, sort of fluffier. So they don't grow sort of slow and hard. They grow sort of quite quickly. So they're quite fluffy. Um, when we grow on that, on, on, particularly when we go along those western coasts. Okay. And how many different sprout varieties are there? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so there's about 30 varieties which we grow in the UK. Most grow, most farmers wouldn't grow uh, 30 varieties. We're growing sort of usually about eight or nine uh, individually, but there are about 30 varieties that, we, that, that, that are used. And they're chosen based on sort of resistance to different diseases as with sort of when you're deciding what wheat to grow? Uh, yeah, so uh, based on things like um, maturity. So what time of year they're going to harvest, how quick they are, uh, disease resistance, to some extent in insect resistance uh, as well. And also how frost hardy they are, particularly for those later ones that we're growing for sort of March, uh, March and April, uh, the following uh, after the following year. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and how are sprouts harvested? I know that you can you can often buy them, can't you, on the stalk? So I assume they've just been sort of cut at the bottom. But obviously, also you can just buy them in a bag. Is it machinery that does that, or is it a very labour-intensive process? Yeah. So most crops, so most of the, the crops that we're harvesting in the minute are machine harvested. The vast majority, a uh, big tracked machine which goes up and down the fields. Uh, there'll be guys on the back. The stalks are cut. 
We then feed the stalks into a machine and a set of rotary knives then trim, neatly trim the, uh, the buttons off and shoot the leaves and the sprouts back onto the, uh, back onto the field. We do hand harvest uh, some of the earlier varieties. They tend to be sort of a bit uneven in terms of button size um, and we can get a bit more yield off if we hand harvest them. When we machine harvest, we tend to leave a bit at the bottom, uh, if that makes sense, whereas we hand harvest and we can pick the whole, uh, pick the whole stalk. Fantastic. So sprout harvest, I think I read that two thirds of sprouts are sort of harvested over the Christmas period because that's when the demand is. Um, and obviously that's when weather is generally quite poor. So does that cause a lot of problems with harvest? Yeah, so we've had a, I guess we've had a particularly challenging uh, sort of period over the last sort of week or so. We've had those very cold, uh, cold weather. Uh, so we've been down to sort of minus six or seven in Lincolnshire uh, overnight and then barely above freezing during the day. Harvesting frozen crop isn't um, isn't ideal. We tend to do quite a lot of damage to the to the buttons. They tend to bruise, um, or, or we cause more uh, sort of cutting type damage on the you know from the from those rotary from those rotary blades. So you, you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's actually around about a third of all sprouts that we we we, we harvest through that uh, through the Christmas period. So about a third are eaten in these sort of two weeks up to and just after. Uh, just after just after Christmas, so that's sort of seventeen thousand tons. So the two weeks up to Christmas are fairly manic, really, for getting <laughs> these things out of the field. There's a lot to do in a pretty short period of time. So this last week, we really had to slow the harvest down, so we're not doing too much damage because everything's frozen. So this week, we've really got to go for it because we're a little bit uh, we're a little bit we're a little bit behind. Wow! And I suppose if you don't get them out on on time. A lot of it will end up wasted. Does sales, I suppose, plummet a little bit after Christmas period's over? Yeah, th things become more steady uh, rather than plummet. So we're sort of steady okay. all the way through the autumn, through the through the so that sort of January, February, March time. But they really ramp up at uh, really ramp up at Christmas. So it's a lot of sprouts to a lot of sprouts to get through <laughs> in a in a short period of uh, in a short period of time. So we say we've got seventeen thousand tons to harvest. Wow, uh, yeah. Uh, and we're a little bit challenged this week, so we'll be working flat out all the way to all the way to Christmas Eve. Oh wow! At Twenty-four so, hours a day. So, gosh, keeping you busy then. So, thank you Absolutely. so much for joining us today on this podcast and taking the. <laughs> no problem. Taking the time. No problem. If anyone, I don't... <laughs> if anyone can't find no uh, any sprouts on the shelves and they can blame <laughs> me. <laughs> so, I, I imagine that sprouts don't need to be stored for long. Then it sounds like it's a very quick turnaround from harvest to obviously getting onto the retailer's shelves. But how are sprouts stored when they are maybe being stored for a bit longer? Yeah, so we do we do try and keep a little bit of stock at this time. Yeah, at the minute, our stocks are pretty low because we've been slowed down for this past week. But we may be holding stuff for sort of two or three days. Um, that's all. And then that just goes into a fridge, a high humidity fridge. So humidity is sort of 95 percent. We're holding these things down to about two or three degrees just to keep them you know, as fresh as we as fresh as we can before we can get them packed and out. Brilliant. So um, I imagine with obviously lots of fruit and veg, there's always big risks for both pests and diseases. So there's probably a, a massive list that you could tell me about. But what would be the main pests and diseases um, that are a risk to sprouts and how could these be prevented? OK, so so we do use, um, you know, there are differences between varieties on both pests and diseases, as, as we've talked about. Um, sort of going through the sort of main pests first, we have uh, we have a little fly called cabbage root fly. Um, that sort of starts laying eggs from uh, sort of end of April, beginning of uh, beginning of May. So bang at the time that we're starting to plant our little plants out in the 
uh, our little plants out in the field. Um, so if we don't do anything, then we we can lose sort of 30, 40 percent of the plant. So we do use uh, we do treat those transplants with an insecticide before they go out. So it's a pretty small dose of insecticide, and that does a pretty good job of keeping them uh, keeping them root fly uh, root fly free, uh, if you like. In terms of other pests, then we get uh, like most other veg crops, we have problems with aphids. So we have issues with peach potato aphid and and cabbage aphid. And then we have a range of sort of caterpillar pests. So things like diamondback moth, which is a migratory moth, comes over in massive numbers from uh, usually from sort of Norway, Sweden. Last couple of uh, last couple of problems we've had have been from there. Uh, silver white similarly, and then small white. And we also get an issue with white fly as well. So keeping these things clean can be a uh, can be a challenge. But we That's do it. have a reasonable range of insecticides that we can use um if you know if, if we need to brilliant i guess it's a case of monitoring and um setting traps to see how how much of things you've got and checking you've met thresholds before sort of going ahead with any insecticides yeah exactly so i mean aphids you know we'll be walking these crops weekly uh looking for aphids and also looking for beneficial insects as well and obviously it's a payoff between the uh payoff between the two uh, in terms of the caterpillar pests then we use pheromone traps and um, we've been trialing these automatic pheromone traps, which have a camera in them. So they send us a count every day. They identify oh, wow. the uh, identify the moth and send us a count every day. So that can help us then focus where we uh, where we where we field walk. And whitefly is sort of one of those very seasonal things. If we have a hot, dry year, it's a problem. If you have a more normal year, then it doesn't tend to be too much of an issue. So we just keep an just keep an eye on that. The whitefly tends to stay on the on the leaves. So. As long as they're not causing too many problems on the buttons, then you know we can stand uh, a, a reasonable level of, of insects on the on the leaf. We're not not selling the leaves after all. So, brilliant. Thank you very much. So, uh, the next question is: Are sprouts particularly hungry for any particular nutrients? Yeah, sprouts love nitrogen. Really, we're trying to build a fairly big. Uh, we're trying to build a fairly big plant, so we've got a fairly woody, meaty stalk um that we need to that we need to grow as well as a, a reasonable leaf canopy you know to provide the energy to produce the sprout so nitrogen is probably the most important um uh, nutrient to uh to brussels sprouts that's not taken away from all the others but um we put a quite a lot of nitrogen on some of these uh, some of these crops but we do have to be careful and it has to be measured uh, we put too much on they all fall over and then we can't harvest them uh, with the uh, with the machinery uh, too little on and then we simply don't get the we simply don't get the yield or things will start to turn uh, start to turn purple so you know we'll, we'll pretty carefully analyze what nitrogen in the soil before we before we start a lot of people also do a mid-season assessment of nitrogen levels uh, in the in the soil and a lot of people also looking at leaf analysis through the season to make sure we've got levels of nitrogen as well as levels of some of the other major and minor nutrients correct in the plant to keep them to keep them growing brilliant and what's the rotation look like on sprouts is there a certain number of years that you need to leave between each time you grow sprouts or yeah so we, we didn't sorry I, well i skipped through insects i didn't really talk to you about diseases yeah so we get a we get a um there's a fairly significant uh, disease of a soilborne disease of uh, sprouts called club root which affects all brassicas um, so we try and leave a longer rotation as we as as we can. Generally, we are sort of one in four, one in five, maybe one in six years, depending on the depending on the on, on the farm. Typically, in rotation with uh, with cereals, 
uh, maybe also with uh, things like potatoes and sugar beets as, as well. So, Brilliant. Were there any other diseases you wanted to touch on whilst we're, we're on diseases? Yeah, we get loads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this, this is where really variety selection becomes important and, and also things like location. So as we go into the winter and disease low, diseases, particularly sort of late autumn, early winter, when diseases are at their highest, then picking where you put your field uh, you want a nice open location where the wind can blow through and reduce your uh, reduce your hours of leaf wetness. It becomes really important. As does nutrition, we talked a bit about nitrogen earlier. And nitrogen is important, but if we overdo it, then it makes we get soft growth with little wax, and that can make things really susceptible um, to to disease. So, yeah, what these we get we get a range of diseases which we call the leaf spots. So uh, things like ring spot, um, alternaria, dark leaf spot, uh, light leaf spot, and foma can be a real challenge to sprout growers. Sprouts have sort of got that architecture where you've got a really nice big umbrella and then you've got all your sort of buttons under and you think that would really shelter them from the weather, which, you know, that umbrella of leaves does. What it also does is create really high humidity with inside the, with inside the canopy. So disease control is quite important and we try and do all the you know, the variety, location, nutrition bits right first so we can then minimise what we do from a fungicide point of view. We also have uh, a, a really, really good disease forecast in, in Lincolnshire. So we can look at the weather and we can also trap spores. Um, so we know if we've got the right level of spores, if we've got a high level of spores and the weather's right, that's when we need to be putting our fungicides on. And that works works really, really well in terms of really targeting where those where those fungicides are used. Fantastic. And if you're trying to get fungicides uh, underneath this big canopy that you mentioned, is there a special type of applicator that you're using to obviously achieve that? Yeah, we've tried we've tried lots of things um, to sort of improve uh, improve coverage. We we tend to use angled nozzles on the on the spray. So we use uh, sort of veg nozzles, um, sort of syngenta veg type nozzles or other angled type nozzles to try and squirt the uh, squirt the fungicide in at an angle to get it under those under those under those top leaves brilliant so that's all the sort of if you like serious questions for today i've got um a couple more for you though um okay. and the first one is the most controversial of them all so are you do you love or loathe sprouts oh love sprouts who doesn't love sprouts <laughs> gotta be something wrong with you you don't like sprouts <laughs> i find i enjoy them more if i call them mini cabbages okay okay <laughs> i think we, we all have a we all have a vision of sprouts don't we which is like um probably yeah well yeah i'm of a certain age so um you know boiled to death and that sort of thing really but they're, they're really nice just steamed or even just roasted in with your roast potatoes not for very long but you know just five ten minutes in with the roast potatoes they're beautiful oh there we go our top tip for the christmas dinner then thank you andy definitely um and then the other thing i've got for you is a, a virtual christmas cracker if you'd like to pull it Okay. All you've got to do is make the, make the noise. I've, I've, got to, I've got to make the, the, the bang, yeah? Okay, yeah. ready? Ready. Are you going to go one, two, three, or? One, two, three. Bang. <laughs> Fantastic. So I've got a Christmas virtual hat here, so you can pop that on. Okay. And then I've you. got a Christmas joke, if you'd like to hear it. I'm not sure, but go for it. <laughs> What's the strongest vegetable? Oh, I've no idea. What is the strongest vegetable? A mussel sprout. Genius, genius, <laughs> genius. The hours must just fly by Christmas in your house. <laughs>
That was brilliant. brilliant. Thanks for joining us today, Andy, and Merry Christmas. No problem at all. Merry Christmas to you. Bye. So I think we'll all agree that no Christmas dinner would be complete without something to wash it all down. So we've got Graham here to tell us a little bit more about the grapes behind a nice glass of bubbly. Hi, Graham. Hello there. Would you mind uh, just introducing yourself for everybody that's listening? No, uh, my name's Graham Brown. I live in Lower Stoft. I'm an independent agronomist specialising in grapevines, uh, care of grapevines. And I look after about eight vineyards here in East Anglia and a couple over near Milton Keynes. I've been doing this for eight years now, after 40 years in beef, dairy and arable. And uh, one after I was made redundant in 2014, I was asked to go and spray a vineyard. I have a neurosa, I'm a neurosa member. I didn't know anything about grapevines before then. And I went and had a look, started spraying the grapevines. I've been doing it ever since. And it's um, it seems I sort of fell into viticulture at just the right time because it, the, the industry is just expanding almost exponentially. It's really taking off. I mean, we have problems, but um, I found it a very challenging crop, very interesting, very sometimes downright um, frustrating when things go wrong but other times it can be very rewarding but uh, but um if that helps answer your question at all any with fantastic yeah that uh that sound we've basically introduced it perfectly and made us all very interested so we better continue <laughs> with the questions so you touched on there the fact that vineyard area is increasing in the uk um can you tell us a little bit more about that and will we start to grow more british grapes as the summers get warmer well, at the moment, according to the latest statistics that I looked up last night, uh, there are in the region of 4,000 hectares of vines planted in the UK, probably more that um, in the pipeline, so to speak. Um, there are 897 vineyards in the UK and 197 wineries. But the umbrella organisation for the British uh, wine industry is WineGB, and that is divided into north, south, east and west. The vast proportion of vines are grown below the M4 corridor, the M25 in the southern counties there. And uh, here in East Anglia, we have, I think, about 80, 75, 80 vineyards in this state. And that, uh, that comprises um, Essex, Suffolk, Norfolk, Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire. So it's quite an area. I, mean, I don't. I do travel over quite a lot of it to put an, an awful lot of miles in visiting people. But uh, no, it, it vines have been grown in this country probably since before the Romans, and people have been dabbling in vines for a long time. Uh, it was quite flourishing up until the sort of First World War, and then the Second World War came along, and it all sort of went by the by. And there was a resurgence of interest in the 70s, and that sort of gradually grew and grew and grew. And then around about 2010, there was a real surge in plantings. Um, since then, as I say, it's the area keeps increasing every year and it's a job to keep up with it. I mean, there's such an interest in it. And, uh, and then answer to your question, well, I went down to um, the Vineyard Show in Hampshire last year and there was a field there, must have been 40 hectares, just newly planted with vines. Um, there's a lot of investment going into the industry. There's a new multi-million pound visitor centre being built down there, the wine industry. And a lot of French com uh, companies, winemaking companies, buying up land 
down in the South Downs to take advantage and change my climate. And in answer to your question, will climate change make a difference? Yes, it will. But whether it's not going to be beneficial or not, I don't really know. Uh, hotter summers, colder, drier winters, wetter winters. Yet to, I think on the balance, it's going to benefit us. So, yeah, so I hope that's answered the question. Yeah, so, there's, so the, you said there was a resurgence in a sort of search of plantations in 2010. So that yeah. wasn't sort of driven by climate change and water temperatures. Is it just that people are more interested or is there a demand for British grapes? There, people became more interested and there is a demand. I mean, um, sales of plant of planting, I mean, think that 9.3 million bottles produced last year and interestingly some of that goes abroad and Norway is our biggest export market <laughs> strangely enough it also goes to America uh, Sweden um, Japan one or two other countries but by and large most of it goes to is, is home sales and about two-thirds of that is sparkling wine and the other third is still wine so it's uh, and and those varieties that have been planted, most of them are the three champagne varieties, are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. So people like their fizz, definitely. And English <laughs> is very good, exceptionally good, which is why the French are buying up land on the South Downs. But uh, I hope that's answered that question. Brilliant. So if someone was interested in starting a vineyard, where would they begin? Is it just generally people in the South that are able to do this? Or how far, how far north could it be possible? Well, as I say, most, most of the planting is done below the M4, but um, once you get above uh, the, the wash and up into Yorkshire, they sort of peter off. There is a vineyard up in Scotland, apparently, but I've not been able to find it. And there is one in Norway, but they cheat. They use waste heat from a nuclear power station to keep the vines warm. So, okay. But um, as I say, most, most of the planting is down south, but um, as the climate warms up, Obviously, that will creep up. You know, we hear about the spring progressing north. You know, the conditions are getting warmer and warmer as you get further and further north. But um, brilliant. So, what would be the main factors for someone to consider if they wanted to? Have right. A go at well, first of all, you need to decide what you want to do with them. Are you going to sell the wine you make, or are you going to grow it for your own consumption? Any vineyard over 0.1 of a hectare has to be notified to the wine standards board which are part of the food standards agency because hmrc the customers and revenue like to keep a tab on these things um, the other th thing is site you, you want a free draining soil vines don't like being waterlogged it mustn't be compacted preferably on a south facing slope at, a, at a below 100 meters elevation altitude and then you need to check out, decide which varieties you want to grow, what end product you're going to have. If you're further west and north, you will need to choose a, a disease-resistant variety. But um, you need to do your homework. Check the soil, get your spade out, do soil analysis, drainage, stuff like that. Um, vines, the vineyard needs to be sheltered but well ventilated. So I'm. Um, if you're in a hollow, you're going to be prone to frost. And if you're up on the top of a hill, you need to plant a windbreak. But yeah, it's a, and the other thing you need to do is visit other vineyards. There's 
people have no conception of how much work goes into producing a bottle of wine. I mean, it's just, it's endless. Labor costs are, after establishing the vines are about of the greatest annual cost. It costs somewhere in the region of, I'm saying this off the top of my head, 20,000 pounds to establish a hectare of vines. And the usual planting width of vines is 2.4, 2.2 to 2.4 meters between the rows and a spacing between the vines of 1 to 1.2 meters. So you get somewhere in the region of 4,000 vines per hectare. The vines themselves don't cost an awful lot, but the trellising, the metalwork, well, in the last couple of years, it, it's, it, it's probably almost gone up by 50% in price. So you, you need deep pockets. And the other thing you want, you want when you plant your vines, you won't get a crop until the, third, until the third year, and that will be a small crop, perhaps about five or 600 kilos a hectare. And then over the next four or five years, that yield hopefully will increase. And average yields are around about eight tons per hectare. So it's, um, and if you equate that to, say, a kilo of, wine, of grapes per bottle, 8,000 bottles per hectare, probably realistically more like six and a half to 7,000 account for wastage and stuff like that. So it's um, a ton of grapes at the moment is cost you anything between two to two and a half thousand pounds a ton. So it doesn't sound much, but by the time you turn that into a bottle of wine, and if it's good wine, you can be selling that for 35, 40 pounds a bottle. You know, there are, you can make money out of it, but you can go bust if you do it wrong. It's, a, it's very difficult, you know, a lot of people rush into it and, as I say, don't realise how much work is involved. But, um, say, so going back, going back to, to, to considerations on planting it, yeah, and the other thing to do is to talk to the guy who you're going to buy the vines from. Vines have been bred on rootstocks that would cope with just about any soil condition, sandy, chalky, clay, I say the only thing they don't like is waterlogging. So you can choose a rootstock that will cope with any condition more or less. But I could go on and on and on. So I know we only have limited time. But anyway, yeah, I hope that's answered that question a bit. You mentioned a high labour cost. Are all the grapes picked um, manually, or is there any sort of machinery that would that would do the harvest? There are, yes, there are machines. I I I, I'm, I suspect on the larger estates down south they use mechanical harvesters certainly in places like australia new zealand france germany they use mechanical harvesting but for most of the smaller vineyards in the uk it's done by manual pick grapes are picked by hand which increases the quality because you can a mechanical harvester obviously picks everything so if you have a few rotten grapes they go into the mix if you're picking by hand you can sort them out and pick the best so you get higher quality wine which is one, <clears throat> pardon me, which is why English wines win awards, you know, on a global scale. So we, we're doing very well in that Brilliant. respect. I imagine they have to be picked quite gently as well, do they? Are they prone to like bruising like apples? You can, well, they, they're not so bad. They're quite, quite resilient. If you, if you drop a bunch of grapes on the floor, it, you know, apart from getting dirt on it, they generally don't come to much harm. The main problem with picking grapes by hand is, is, is keeping your fingers out of the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no, grapes, when they're picked, they are processed very quickly. 
And when we picked them, we, we'd send them off to the winery. We, we had some potassium metabisulfite to kill off any um, bugs that might have crept in there. So, and then they are processed. But um, no, they, they, they're not like apples. Because they process so quickly, if it doesn't, you know, it's not as if you're trying to store them for any length of time, as you would apples or something like that. So it's um. Yeah, now I think bread. about it. Any time I have dropped a grape in the kitchen, it has probably just uh, bounced away. <laughs> yes, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you mentioned as well um, about the soil. I've heard people say that soil is important for grapes because they pick up the flavour from the soil. Is that true? Well. Um, there's been a lot of scientific research done on this and the scientists say no it doesn't pick up flavors from the soil but there are people around who claim that they can tell where a wine has come from by the taste of it but personally i you could give me a wine from down in sussex and wine from yorkshire and i wouldn't tell the difference but it all makes you wonder when you look at tasting notes on wine so you come up with phrases like flinty taste where does that come from? Who, who's chewed a piece of flint? I mean, <laughs> you know, these inventive descriptions that we use to sell wine. But um, I just grow the things. I don't do anything to do with the marketing of it, as you can tell. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I got it. Next, please. <laughs> you, you already mentioned as well about the drainage of the soil. But are, are there other things that are important? Um, things like pH? Is there any nutrients that um, vines would be particularly hungry for? Yeah, vines love potassium. So if you're on a potash releasing clay, you'll be OK. Um, magnesium deficiency is quite a common because, as I mentioned before, a little bit of history, the vi vines were nearly wiped out in Europe by phylloxera, which is a, a, a like a, an aphid, it's a bug. Oh. it gets onto the roots. It was introduced from America in about 1840, 1845, and it virtually wiped out the European vine industry because they, they brought over some Native American vines to hybridize with the Europe, European vine. And they also bought over powdery mildew and downy mildew as well. So we had quite a package of diseases and pests that came over with them. They got round the phylloxera problem by grafting European vines onto American vine roots. So all vines that you buy in the UK and Europe, you have a European Vitus vinifera vine, which is Chardonnay, Chablis, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, grafted onto an American rootstock, Vitis rupestris or Berlandieri, which are resistant to this. So it's, um, and these rootstocks will cope with other, there's hundreds of different rootstocks, and they will cope with different soil conditions. But you do need to do soil testing, a broad spectrum of soil testing. And then when the vines are growing, you do either a PTO analysis or a leaf analysis through the season just to keep tabs on what's going on. They need boron and zinc, say magnesium, sulfur, nitrogen, obviously, um, calcium. Phosphorus, my whole range. I mean, they're, they're a plant. They need, they need, they need nutrition. And there are one or two companies out there that specialise in grapevine nutrition, and they will have very good grapevine nutrition programmes. But you, you need to do constant testing every year just to keep on top of things because uh, magnesium deficiency, for instance, can really hold the vines back. Boron deficiency, if they have a boron deficiency. You get different sized berries, what they call hen and chick. So you get a bunch of grapes of large grapes and these tiny wee ones. So yeah, balanced nutrition, like everything, you know, like every, every you know, any crop. 
balanced nutrition. And um, water has been an issue this year, they're being very hot and dry. By and large, great plains don't need irrigating in this country. But this year, because it's been so hot and dry, very young vines have, well, some of it, they've just died because the roots haven't been up to the job. And it has exposed weaknesses in some of the older vines where they perhaps have a, a, a latent disease and the heat has just pushed them over the edge and they've died. So if you are planting a vineyard and on sandy, light sandy soil, if your pockets are deep enough, put an irrigation system in as well at the same time, a drip irrigation system, because then you can put fertilizer on and water your vines at the same time. And it makes a heck of a difference, makes an awful lot of difference. But I think if climate change carries on as it does, the need to irrigate vines will be greater in this country, Tartan. Yeah. Brilliant. And what about weed risks? I imagine that small weeds at the bottom much of a risk, or is it uh, sort of your climbing weeds that are the main problem? Yeah, the climbing weeds. Well, obviously, with young vines, you need to keep them clear of weeds so to keep the competition away. Um, you can plant, if you're planting by hand, you can use plastic UV resistant strips as a mulch. And when they're growing, obviously, you keep them free of weeds. Um, by and large, most people try and keep the base barrier underneath the vines free from weeds. And the, the problem weeds are like the thistles and the nettles and mugwort and, and rose bay willow herb, these big deep rooted things. Grasses and stuff like that we control with, uh, most people use Roundup, it's, it's good. Um, there are mechanical ways of getting rid of weeds and some use high pressure water like the, you know, the patio scrubber on your, on your, your power washer yeah. thing like that and then there's mechanical hose that follow they flick in and out as they go past the vine flame weeding's quite common in america and places like that where they have propane fired burners and just go along and scorch the weeds up and there is even i've heard somewhere uh, a device that electrocutes the, vine, uh, the weeds but um i think that's work in progress but yeah a, a, a mature vine if it's on good soil and has enough water, I mean, they will tolerate weeds underneath them, but they do better without the weeds underneath them. Although having said that, over the winter time, once you've picked your, vine, your grapes, you can allow the weeds to grow back up again, because obviously they can be like a little cover crop and just okay. soak up any nutrients you might have applied over the summer in the form of foliar feeds and stuff. And then you can spray those off for sort of end of January, end of January, beginning of February, and have a new clean swipe for the, for the next year and of course as the weeds die down they're going to release nutrients back into the soil and off you go. Vines by the way they they, they don't need much nitrogen. Um, if you're on a fertile site they probably won't need any at all but if you're on sandy soil the um, RB209 reckons about 70 kilos of nitrogen per hectare at the top end so anywhere between naught and 70 kilos of nitrogen per hectare you apply that earlier on, about three weeks before the vines flower. I could go on and on, a bit stop, Ross. <laughs> and the, the glyphosate that you talk about, are you applying that whilst your vines are still there? So you have to be very careful not to let it get to the to the vine itself? The vine, ah, right. Um, when the vines are grafted, where the, 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 the rootstock and the, the, the European variety join is 
that node there keeps putting out little shoots. So these little shoots have to be taken off each year. Um, you used to be able to use um, carfendrazone to just scorch them off. But nowadays, you have to knock them off by hand or have a little mechanical thing to knock them off. The vine trunk itself, you can spray round up onto it and it doesn't hurt it. So you can, apply, as, long, as long as there is no green growth in your spray area, you're fine. So wow, interesting. Yeah, I've managed to kill one vine with Roundup in eight years. So. <laughs> <laughs> Doing pretty well then. So also you mentioned uh, an aphid that sort of wiped out vines um, in the past. What are the yes. current main pests? Right, the current main diseases are the, the, the powdery mildew, downy mildew and botrytis. Um, also phomopsis, which is a, a botrytis and phomopsis affect the plant at flowering and they go on to cause the berries to rot and go mushy. I mean, you're probably, people who've grown strawberries will be familiar with botrytis, a grey furry mould on your strawberries. Uh, vine, the grapevines just turn into a horrible, pulpy, mushy mess with that. Um, powdery mildew and downy mildew, about to say both came from America. Powdery mildew likes warm, humid conditions, and it... it <laughs> It starts, it, its best temperature for growth is around 26 degrees centigrade, which is what vines like. So if, you're, if you haven't um, been doing a, leaving your, your spray regime up to scratch, you might think that everything's fine. You can walk through your vineyard on a Monday morning, go back at the, on a Friday, and lo and behold, everything is covered in this grey mass, which is not good. Downy mildew is not so much of an issue because we have an awful lot of actives. Um, from a potato industry because uh, downy mildew is related to uh, late blight. So the same chemicals um, control late blight control downy mildew. So uh, the other things you have to watch out for, um, spotted winged drosophila, which is a little fruit fly that can lay its eggs in the vines. Um, other minor insect pests, um, mirrored bugs that sort of make bragged leaves. Um, the main pests later on are birds and wasps. Wasps love some of the thinner skin varieties and the birds, particularly starlings and blackbirds, love the black grapes. I mean, they if you don't keep your eye open, they'll strip a field. I mean, they, they, you know when the grapes are ripe when the birds turn up. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Brilliant. And I think you mentioned that um, vines would normally be, be covered. The only vines I've ever seen were the ones uh, that I saw when I went to Fruit Focus this year. They they weren't covered at the time, but obviously it was very hot in the summer. Do you generally uncover them, uncover them, or do some of them stay uncovered year round? That in this, well, in in Europe, um, in this part of the world, they stay out all the year round. But in some parts, well, China, um, they take them down off the trellising and lay them on the ground and bury them. In some parts of Canada and America, they heap up the soil around the graft, where the graft is. If you get a severe frost and it damages a the vine, then the vine will put new shoots out from just below, just from ground level and you can start again. But no, in this country, we don't cover them. We do, we can cover them protection against hail, with hail netting and bird netting. But by and large, no, they're not covered. Okay. And also earlier you mentioned that it takes about three years to get a crop from a vine. 
Um, And then over the next four to five years, you'll have a good yield. Does that bring us to the end of the life of a vine? How long does a vine last? Yeah, commercial vines last usually 20 to 25 years. I mean, they can last longer. I mean, there are vineyards in in Spain and Italy, the ones that escaped phylloxera that are reputed to be over 250 years old. The oldest vine in this country that is fully documented is the one in Kew Gardens, the great one in Kew. That was planted in 1768. And it's still pushing grapes out today. I mean, anywhere between two to 350 kilos off one vine. As if your vine does survive and it gets really old, and they say that the quality of wine produced by a really old vine is better, but I can't vouch for that. I have to take the expert's opinion on that <laughs> one. I, I, I'm not an enophile, I just like growing the things. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So I'll just we'll just finish with a few um, quick questions. You might have already said this, so apologies. But how many different varieties of grapes were there again? Altogether, there are about ten thousand, <laughs> <laughs> approximately. And of that, about thirteen hundred are used for wine production around the world. Um, in this country, the most common, as I mentioned earlier, the most common vines variety grown are Chardonnay. Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, which are French varieties, so it's used for sparkling wine. And then we have some of the more disease-resistant varieties like Regent and Rondo, and some of the hybrid Cibot Blanc, which are more suited to, these are more like German varieties. They are German varieties, so they're more suited to slightly cooler conditions. And they will produce a wine that is more similar to sort of like Rieslings and stuff like that. Although, with the heat this year, I mean, it's been a phenomenal year for, for, for growing grapes. If, 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 if your vine survived the heat, it's been very good. I mean, yields have been high, quality is good. So it's going to keep your fingers crossed for these fine yards and wine, you know, wineries. I think it'll be perhaps the past 2018, which was the last really good year. So I um, hope that's answered that question a bit. Brilliant. So um, just clarify, if I am growing a French variety of grape in the UK, is it still a French wine because it was a French variety or does it become a British wine? Uh, well, no, just a, right. A British wine is made from wine. There's wine that is made from grapes or juice imported into the country. In this country, we uh. have wine of England or wine of Wales, English wine. So no, it's still, they can't be called a French wine. Although I think, I might be wrong here, but I think some of the French champagne houses are managing to go grow grapes here in England and still call it champagne. But I might be wrong there, but no, it, it, champagne is made by the traditional method, which is a double fermentation method. So, I mean, carver is made like that and sparkling wine, made by England in England is made by the traditional method. Prosecco is made by the Charmat method, which is first fermentation in a, in, in, in a big tank, and then second fermentation is done in, in another big tank, and then you just squirt into the bottles. It's cheaper and easier, and people love it. <laughs> so, yeah, so I hope that answers that question. But Brilliant. So... Um, a bit of a trivia question. How many grapes are in a bottle of wine? Yeah, that one before. Um, 
there's a bit of a bit of disagreement here. If you look on the internet, they come you come up with a figure anywhere between four thousand and seven hundred, but um, it depends on how big the grapes are and how much juice you can extract from them. This year, because of the heat, uh, sugar content has been very high in some grapes, so you don't get much juice out of them. So obviously, you have to squeeze more grapes to get a bottle of wine. Um, we usually go by weight. So to make a bottle of wine, so usually it's around about one kilo to 1.2 kilos of grapes to make one 750 cc bottle of wine. I so either way, that so, so either way that sounds to me like a glass of wine should count as one of your five a day. Yes, yeah. Oh, and interestingly, um, it, but there are organic wines produced organically. Um, and most wines nowadays, I would think, can be classed as vegan because one of the processes for, for, for clarifying the wine in the winery used to be used using stuff called icing glass, which comes from fish or egg whites. But now a lot of people use alginates from seaweed, so we can call it vegan. So that's, you know, we're trying to keep everybody happy. <laughs> <laughs> and it tastes just the same. Fantastic. So the final most important question um, of the day, um, what is the best British sparkling wine that you could recommend us to get oh, for Christmas? You've saved the last hardest question to last. <laughs> I, have to, I have, to be, have to be very diplomatic here. I could be shot. No, basically, I, I would say choose a local wine, support your local industry, you know, your local vineyards. Mm -hmm. And then it depends on your own taste. I mean, you might want a, a dry sparkling wine. You could have a, a medium dry. You could have a rosé. You could have a red. I mean, there's so many different sparkling wines out there. And the old saying, one man's meat and another man's poison holds true for wine. I mean, just when people are tasting wine at the winery, I, I, I've never tell them what to expect from a bottle of wine because, well, for instance, one particular variety, some people can taste strawberries and eat, other people taste rhubarb so you have to go and try before you buy yeah take a trip to your local winery taste some find out what it's all about support your local industry there's about 10,000 people working in the industry now you know including the full-time equivalent so it's I say it's a, it's a support the English industry keep it keep it all keep it all bubbling along nicely that's a good phrase isn't it <laughs> fantastic yeah but that's brilliant. Thanks for joining us today, Graham. It's been really interesting to hear um, much more about how the grapes um, behind our wine uh, are, are grown. So I have got a, a virtual Christmas cracker to pull with you if you want to pull the Christmas cracker. Uh, right. <laughs> how do I do that? <laughs> just, just have to make the pop noise like uh, we've set off a set off a cracker. What's on the that's all annoyed. That was brilliant, yeah. There we go. I've got the, your hat the, here, so just made put the your hat on. So you can pop on your hat. And then I've got a joke for you if you want to hear the joke. Go on, go on, fire away, fire away. What did the grape say to the bunch? <laughs> My daughter would know the answer to this, but I don't. <laughs> what is it? Go on. It's grape hanging out with you. Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> and it's been great talking to you, Graham. Likewise. As always, I'd like to say a massive thank you to both of our speakers today. We've had a fantastic insight to both Sprouts and Christmas wine, and I think both speakers really enjoyed my virtual crackers. 
so it's definitely the best purchase of my Christmas so far. You can claim one CPD point for listening to this festive episode by going to your members area, clicking submit CPD points and typing agronomy matters Christmas into both boxes before clicking submit. Alternatively, you can email us with this information to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. So the code for this podcast was Agronomy Matters Christmas. And I hope that all of our listeners have enjoyed this festive episode. And I'd like to wish you all a very happy Christmas and New Year. I look forward to joining you all again for Agronomy Matters 2023.